Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to the program. Today is the second of a two-part conversation with Brant Hansen, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Brant and my conversation as much as I enjoyed talking with him. He is an author, nationally syndicated radio host, and advocate for healing children with correctable disabilities through Cure International. And by the way, as you hear us discuss Cure International in the conversation, the website is cure.org. On his official website, branthanson.com, Brant describes himself as a, quote, toast eater, occasional cape wearer, accordion player, and also host of the Brant Hansen Show. At the top of part one, I read what he calls his real bio, where he's honest and deprecating. And now in part two, I'm reading what he calls his impressive-sounding bio. And that says that Brant has won multiple Personality of the Year awards for his work on his offbeat and quirky radio show, which airs on more than 200 stations around the world. His podcast with his friend and radio producer Sherry Lynn from the Brant and Sherry Oddcast has been downloaded millions of times. Brant leverages his radio platform to advance the healing work of Cure, a global ministry of hospitals and programs that offer healing for children. His first book, Unoffendable, has prompted a national discussion on the idea of forgiveness and our culture's embrace of self-righteous anger. His second book, which I'm excited that we talked about in this interview, is both provocative and very personal, and that will be released in late November of 2017, just two weeks after this interview airs. And that book is called Blessed Are the Misfits, Great News for Those Who Are Introverts, Spiritual Strugglers, or Just Feel Like They're Missing Something. In this book, uh, Brant addresses his own and many others' inability to, quote, feel God's presence and how God himself might feel about that. Brant has written for CNN.com, The Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, The South Florida Sentinel, and Relevant. Brant has been a game inventor, fronted a modern rock band, still dabbles in singing and songwriting, 
and he's traveled extensively throughout the world for cure, including multiple trips to Cure's Hospital for Women and Children in Afghanistan. He's been married 27 years to Carolyn, and they have two grown children. So let's jump into part two with Brant Hansen. Of your two books, Unoffendable and then Blessed Are the Misfits, which is coming out in just a few months, uh, this one is really, really personal and you disclose a lot, including the Asperger's. But you talk a lot about how that influenced you socially and in school. Yeah, I uh, never quite understood why I didn't fit in at the time. I wish I had the diagnosis earlier, but it just wasn't really around or popularized at that time. And it, you know, I did some odd things in school, for instance. Did you want me to read this part of the chapter thing here? Or, yeah, so I, I, I was uh, wanting you to talk about how it impacted you, but that would be a perfect time to do that because this chapter from Blessed Are the Misfits is really touching but also hilarious. Um, well, do you want me to start at the top of the chapter or where, where would you like me to start? Any idea? You can start at the beginning of the book and read all the way to the end. We, we, we have 63 minutes left, and I think if you read quickly, this can be an audio book. All right. Well, let's let's try it here. This is this is yeah. I, I I structured it as kind of like the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are these people, and I'm trying to explain it. There's a lot of good news for those of us who are oddballs, and this chapter does deal with that. It's called Blessed are those of us who apparently landed on the wrong planet. So the formula for teenage popularity was in place. I had a neurological condition that caused me to shake my head nonstop, which is true. It's called nystagmus. So even now my head is shaking back and forth. Uh, I was severely nearsighted and I had two lockers to house all my large print books. I had Asperger's syndrome. I was also the president of the Illinois Student Librarians Association. That's right. I helped organize annual library themed conventions at which we played Dewey Decimal Bingo. And I'm not making any of this up. Just to make it worse, I played the flute in the band. I don't know why I chose to play the flute, but I did. And I wound up being the only male flautist, I'm confident, in Central Illinois marching band history. Actually, I do know why I chose the flute, but I don't want to admit it. I was in sixth grade and I'd just seen a love boat rerun, wherein Julie, the cruise director, played the flute. I thought the flute made a nice sound. Pretty sure in light of that admission, if I ever had any shred of street cred remaining, it's now been obliterated. Please know that Assumption, Illinois, where I'm from, is a farming and hunting town. Also, football. That's what teenage guys do. You work on the farm, you hunt, you football, you chew some skull. That's it. You do not farm, hunt, football, chew some skull, and play the flute. I grew ashamed after I realized I had picked the apparently wrongest possible instrument. Humans have cultural norms about musical instruments, and while I don't understand them, the flute is clearly not an option for guys in the Midwest of the United States, but no one told me. But it was too late. My mom would not let me quit playing the flute. That's yet another sentence you won't hear Vin Diesel saying. So I had to figure out a way not to be seen. I asked the marching band director to kindly put me in the interior of all our formations. Unfortunately, tragically even, I was pretty good at playing the flute. I beat out all the high school girls for first chair in the band. You would think they would be impressed by this show of alpha male awesomeness, but they were not. If you think this is the nadir of the story, that this is rock bottom, let me assure you it is not. Oh no, my friend, this is just the setup. We practiced in a band shell arrangement with woodwinds on the lowest level. The floor was a hard tile. The walls concrete block. 
One afternoon, our band director, Mr. Sesco, had us all together, junior hires and high schoolers, to practice for a big concert. The room was silent. Everybody was already warmed up. Total silence. And a sheet of music fell off my music stand. It wafted like a feather floating behind me and settling on the floor. I reached back through the gap in the metal folding chair, contorting my shoulder a bit to reach the music, and tipped over the chair. It fell over. I lay atop the chair, my arm pinned mercilessly between the folded seat of the chair and the back of the chair. I couldn't get out. My body's weight pinned my arm inside, and I couldn't get up because my arm was stuck. Please know that a folding chair under precise conditions can become a Chinese flautist trap. The room was silent except for my lonely, clattering cacophony, I mean. My struggle was loud, as it generally is, when a boy is vainly flipping about, dying fish-style, clanking a metal folding chair against a hard floor. No one said a word, or helped. They just watched in shock and awe. I flipped, and I tugged, and I flopped, and I clanked. I remember looking toward the clarinet section where two girls I had crushes on, Tammy and Jill, watched in a mix of concern and amusement. I remember looking up as I thrashed about at Mr. Sesco, still on the podium, baton still frozen in ready position, his mouth agape. Clankety, flip, clank, arg, clankety. Eventually, I can't remember how, but the chair let me go. I know I got loose because I'm not currently wearing a folding chair. I do remember I had to leave for x-rays. I had to wear my arm in a sling at school. My mom eventually let me quit playing the flute, but it turns out that when whatever you were when you were 13, in your mind's eye, that's who you are. So in mine, I'm a small kid with glasses, and I'm on a tile floor in front of a crowd, and I'm wrestling a folding chair. Wow. Was that, was that hard for you to engage in as you wrote it? You know, I don't mind laughing at myself. I don't know how else to handle it. And there's so many of these things. And my friends know that. They kid me. I went back to my high school reunion a few weeks ago. And one of them even said that, like, man, there's just stuff that has happened to you and it just keeps happening. I think it's a blessing now I can handle it. And the thing is, and you know this too, as soon as you give up being cool, it's so freeing or even trying to be cool. So it was hard at the time, but now it's just, it's all fine. It, it, it puts people's defenses down and. Once you share stuff like that, people are put at ease usually and they'll, they'll listen to you. Yeah, so you can see it as a gift now. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist, right? So I read that story and I go, oh, man, you know, that, that's got to be incredibly wounding. Asperger's doesn't mean that you don't feel, right? So that had to have impacted you on some level, even though today you can see it as a gift. Well, I've always tortured myself, and I still do struggle with this where I feel – and this is common with Asperger's people too, but I'm sure it goes beyond that. And that is the haunting sense of, of failure, like I'm being chased by it. And I, I always struggle with that, and I think it's just something I have to carry. And I know it's not accurate. I know. Intellectually, I know it's not accurate. Um, but when you're young – yeah, that, that's it's pretty tough to take. And when you have stuff happen like that, and the things I went through with my parents, which were pretty difficult, were played out very publicly because we were in a small town and my dad was a pastor. And some of the stuff that that we went through was, you know, there's no hiding from that. And I do think that's shaping. But I also think that your wounds from your past are 
ways that people can see God later on. And I've, I have seen that in my own life. I really have. Like, it shapes my personality. But, you know, I God's using my personality on the radio, apparently. So, Yeah, and anybody who listens to you knows that you are different in terms of you're not just um, – I don't want to be critical of any other on-air personalities, but uh, you, you talk about your brokenness and you talk about uh, the difficulty of life. So this idea of feeling like a failure, that's a big theme in the book, specifically that you feel like a failure at faith in God. And I just want to read the opening sentence of the foreword that you wrote. Uh, you, you write, In your book, if American church culture makes perfect sense to you and you fit in seamlessly, don't read this. Seriously, return this book immediately before you spill something on it. Uh, Tell me why you opened your book that way. Because I just know a lot of people, and I know this from working in Christian radio too, some people are just not going to get it. And that's okay. And God bless them. And they're usually people, honestly, I was profiling, usually people who haven't gone through a whole lot. Of adversity. They've had a pretty decent life. I mean, I know we've all gone through some, but I think I remember Phil Vischer talking about this, the guy from VeggieTales fame and does his own podcast and stuff. But I remember a long time ago reading a comment that he said his humor came from pain and his insight you know, was rooted. I think his parents got divorced. He went through some stuff. And I find that I'm a huge Monty Python fan. Well, so is he. And I think so are a lot of people. And I, generally speaking, they went through something. And that made them have absurd senses of humor. And uh, some people get it. Some people stare at you and just blink. And for people who haven't gone through some stuff, God bless you. But you're going to read that book and just go, what in the world is he talking about? Right, right. And you've not only gone through stuff, but as a follower of Jesus – You've always felt like an outsider. You've not experienced God's loving arms around you. You wrote in the book about how you've never heard his voice. Yep. Never. And I've always felt like I must, something's really significantly wrong with me. And I think some people will think that. Maybe some people listening now are like, well, then why are we even listening to this guy? You know, he did, he hasn't been up on Sinai and hasn't come down with the, with this book. And I am very thankful now because I, what I understand from biblical narratives, what the Bible says, life experience, talking to people, just learning. What I have found is that spirituality isn't necessarily what they say it's going to look like. Like the fact that I don't feel like so many, so many song lyrics are about, you know, your loving arms around me, Lord, and I feel it. I, I read people's tweets from Christian authors and stuff and about, about these palpable emotional experiences they have where they can just they feel God there, and I have never had that. And so how have, how have you continued in your faith all these years? Well, um, I'm so skeptical, and I think if people read the book, they'll understand why. Not only the Asperger stuff, but just... And, and I'm just cut that way intellectually, but being raised the way I was has made me so skeptical, but I think I'm so skeptical. I'm, I'm skeptical of skepticism. And I honestly think the only, the only person who makes any sense to me is Jesus because he acknowledges people aren't good. Nobody's good. 
I mean, every other system in some ways, well, we're good or we're going this way. Let's just follow these rules and let's let's do this and let's do that. And people are getting better. And I'm looking at history. I'm also a fan of history and a student of that, a student of observing humans. I don't think we're good. I don't think that's what history shows us at all. I think history is war and death and jealousy and envy and backbiting and families, you know, going at each other. Um, with with occasional glimpses of grace and punctuated by a little bit of patience with each other, but that's the exception. So Jesus comes along, acknowledges it, and then actually does something about it. Because I don't, th- I think we're helpless, and I think the the people who pretend otherwise are just doing that. They're pretending. So I keep having to come back to him. Even the sinfulness I've seen in the church, in my own self, and in other people, I'm like, yeah, apparently sin is real. So the, the hypocrisy that I see in and out of the church doesn't chase me away from Jesus. It makes me think he's right. He's right. He's the only one that makes any sense at all. And the other thing is, if there's a God, and again, I've skeptic my way into thinking there is, because the other, the alternative explanation, there is wanting to me, just blatantly wanting at every level. Um, that if if Jesus is God, this is the most compelling God I could ever even I couldn't come up with it. I mean, he's the best. That he would treat people that way and that he would offend the government and uppity religious people simultaneously. (laughs) And the things he would say, the courage that he has and who he would stand up for. I mean, if that's God, that's awesome news. So I'm really drawn to him. He makes sense to me. And I try to say it in the book, too, just for people that are like me, to say, look at the advantages that maybe we have at understanding the kingdom that, quote, unquote, normal people don't have. Like, they won't appreciate some of Jesus' character like we can appreciate because we're so rooting on someone to finally call it like it is. And that's what he does. Yeah, I really appreciated that in the book, um, that you brought it back to the being being a misfit can be a strength and a blessing and an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage. Oh yeah. And well, look, I mean, you know, this. like scripturally, we're supposed to be aliens and strangers. Well, I feel like an alien all the time. So, Hey, that makes sense to me. Um, and I think we look at the culture, the culture seems messed up to people. And I think the reason the culture seems messed up is because it actually is really messed up. Like we've got, we value all the wrong things. And I think people who don't fit in are can more readily see that than someone who fits in seamlessly or has what the culture wants. You've got money or you're, you're sexy or something like that stuff can be an inhibitor to, to understanding just how absurd our culture really is. You know, as we're talking about this and as I was reading the book, uh, one of the ways I related, of course, I'm, I'm not a misfit in any stretch of the imagination, but uh, just kidding, if people could see me now. It, it, and this is why I've always connected with your, uh, with your work and how you are on the radio and just who you are as a person. But um, as an addict and as somebody who has a lot of abuse in their background, I have a lot of the internal dialogue uh, of I'm a failure and I'm on the outside and I'm on the margins. And then some of the ways that that's uh, caused a lot of pain in my life. So. You know, people look at me and I have a certain level of success and education, and yet my journey has been one internally 
of feeling like a misfit and an outsider that goes, wow, this Jesus is attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bingo. Well, that's just it. And it can be from, di- it can be from different angles, but you can see why certain people wanted to hang out with them. Yeah. And just based on, just based on your story, like the stuff that you have been through, you could continue to pose and then you couldn't. And when all that's stripped away, the real Jesus is really attractive. The gig is up, you know? Yeah. The real, the real Jesus. Yeah. The real Jesus. But the, the, the religious gig is up. The, the acting out, it's too desperate for that anymore. I can't do that anymore. Um, so I, I do think, I, I think people who have made colossal mistakes, public failures, um, or been aliens from the very start, from day one on planet Earth, uh, have a real advantage. <laughs> I really do. Well, that, that's the message of Scripture, right? But then our own natures and, and sometimes Christian culture comes along and says, no, Jesus will make your life better, and um, here's what you can expect. Yeah, and that's that's really where I'm going to with, with the book to try to tell people what is it? What can what can you reasonably expect out of this relationship with God and this on this planet? For some people, the expectation is raised that you're going to have these loving arms around you, all these emotional experiences, and you're going to hear His audible voice because people say that stuff all the time. They're like, you know, God told me this morning that I needed to do this, and then He said, and. I know, I know you're, maybe you're speaking in euphemism. I just don't understand it. You're speaking in non-literal language, but I ask people, what did you mean when you said that? And I'm, I'm honest. I'm not trying to pin somebody on a logical thing. I'm like, you just said, God told you what, what happened? And most of the time they, they don't mean there is an audible voice, but I even heard people say that I heard his audible. I heard him audibly tell me. And then I want to know what that means. Well, for some people, I think God audibly talked to them, but I don't think it's, I don't think it happens enough that we should expect it, like, and be disappointed. Like God hasn't talked to me in a week. Where'd he go? I think, I think we we're in this weird in between time before the wedding. And I try to get at that in the book too. just go, if you, if you're betrothed to somebody, but you're not going to see him for a year or two, but you're still committed like you're not all the way there yet. There's something in our relationship that we still yearn for. And if people act like, you know, my relationship's all the way there, I'm already in total bliss with God. And I, it's incredible. Like I anticipate that happening someday, but for right now, there's a little more of a yes. And like, yes, I'm committed to him. He loves me. I love him. Um, but we're in kind of an in-between stage that's Sometimes the way is a little darker than that. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And just to be clear, you made this point, um, maybe not explicitly, but someone might go, well, gosh, you know, this is always negative, and if you really did just have more faith, then you would feel his arms and hear his voice. This must just be the fact that you have Asperger's. But you are writing this out of your own story, but also talking to countless people about their their experiences like this, too. Oh, absolutely. And I, I even quoted this study from um, Lerman, a sociologist. I think she's at, at Berkeley. But she was interviewing evangelical Christians about, you know, hearing God's audible voice and found that 90 percent of them say they never have heard his audible voice. OK, 
Well, you can say, well, that's terrible news. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think, I think Noah had 950 years on the planet. I think God talked to him five times in scripture. And there's a whole lot of stories of people that talk to him once, like in the Old Testament or twice, like patriarchs we're talking about. And I think that I think the problem is if we raise this level of expectation about this is the way it looks, this is what it means to be spiritual, you get emotional. And then God speaks into your life. Well, you know what? That makes sense for some people, but there's a whole lot of us that are leaving the church or leaving faith because we're like, I'm not having that experience. So I guess God's left me behind or maybe my tendencies towards shame is well-rooted. Maybe God is really ashamed of me and he's left. So I would like, I'd like to be able to tell those people that don't have those experiences. No, you know what? That's not what's going on. <laughs> you know, God is still there. He even, that's the last thing he said in, in Matthew, like the book of Matthew is I'm going to be with you always. Apparently we would need that reminder. Like, don't forget I'm with you. You're going to need me to tell you that because it's not going to be obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what can we expect? I think well, that's a great question. I think we can expect God to be faithful. I think we can expect him to work in our lives and bring his Holy Spirit into our lives and manifest itself with fruit. And what I mean by that, some people go, well, fruit, that means, you know, thousand people that I baptize or something like, no, fruit means love, joy, peace, gentleness, these sorts of things. And over the course of time, he'll transform us in his character and we'll see more of that in our character. And that will be the evidence that he's alive and at work in our lives. That's it. It's not going to be, we got a big stage or we got a big platform or now we're a big stuff. It's going to be, we see the Holy spirit working through us in that way. And sometimes it's quiet. Most, most, mostly it's probably quiet. And maybe your spouse or your best friend will have to tell you, you know what? You're more patient than you used to be. Um, or we won't necessarily even notice it, but he will change us. As far as emotional payoffs, I don't know what's guaranteed. I don't think there's anything guaranteed that way. Um, that may be tough news for some people, but for a lot of us, it's good news because, again, we haven't had that. And I, I don't think God's abandoned us. I think he still loves me. So as I was reading the book, and even um, as I anticipated our conversation today, this idea that you know, you've never had those moments of experiencing that. I think this might not just be because I'm a psychotherapist, but maybe it's just the difficulty of how hard it is for one person to sit with another person's pain. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I read these, you know, very poignant stories of how you haven't experienced that, there was something inside of me that went, but, but, you know, like, have you read this book? And did you try that practice? <laughs> and that's not my heart, but I was just aware of an impulse to want to say, but you can have that. You can have that. And and that's not even God's promise. Yeah. You know, 
of course, the long story is, and I won't make it long, just real short. It's like I have read a billion books and I've wrestled and talked and wrestled and wrestled. And I remember, I remember reading about Mother Teresa and her going back and forth with her spiritual advisors. And she's going through 50 years of this thing. 50 years. But I'm so thankful that there doesn't seem to be a requirement for my emotional response to God. I can't find it anyway. Maybe it's my biblical ignorance. Um, what God wants from me, he doesn't consider my feelings to be worship. Um, he wants obedience. And I can do that. And I think that's, uh, I think that's glorifying to him. I think he wants me to be obedient. I think that's really where my heart is. We, the emotions are great. There's nothing wrong with them. They really are. They're great. Um, but that's not, apparently it's not his ultimate goal is to make us feel tingly or, or I don't know, maybe tingly is too dismissive. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> I mean, I'll leave that to people who actually feel it. Um, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know he's looking for us to have those religious experiences so much as he's looking for daily faithfulness. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask you what you meant by obedience because a lot of the folks I talk to, obedience conjures up uh, a God with his thumb down on us saying, you know, I want you to be obedient or compliant. And you're talking more about faithful. And a word I like to use with, with obedience as a synonym, synonym is alignment that you're, you, you want to align your heart with God, but your heart does not necessarily equal emotion. Right, totally. Oh, right, exactly. So when it comes to being generous, for instance, I'm not naturally generous, but um, I know I need to be. And so I'll start small, and it's weird because then I become more open to it as I do it more. And I... Can be, I think by nature, I'm a rude person, but I think God's changed me over time where I will be more faithful with somebody who's crossing my path. We live in a very urban area and there's a lot of people around here and a lot of crazy people. And um, every time I set foot out the door, there's some interaction. And by nature, I don't suffer fools gladly, but I think the Holy Spirit's worked in my life now where my, my heart is softer and... You know, I, I'll try to be faithful with everybody God sends across my path. And I think it's a, it's a daily submission to that that I'm talking about. And I don't think it's a heavy-handed thing. I think it's, it's a response to how good God is. He loves even me. That, uh, well, yeah. I think it really is a good challenge um, to the church to think about this idea of do we need to be emotional? Of course, there's an idea of being wholehearted, but that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily equal emotion. But you you wrote an article in CNN.com called Mr. Spock Goes to Church. What, what would it look like for Mr. Spock to go to church? Well, the way I was describing it was just feeling hyperlogical when I'm sitting there and there's a worship band and fog machine or whatever, and we do the... Even as somebody who understands a little bit of music, um, I know how to create whatever it is those people are responding to generally because it's it 
transcends out of Christian music and all forms of music where, yeah, if I do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, bridge, build, drop out the drums, back into the chorus, now chorus again, maybe modulate up, and then, bam, I'm going to get goosebumps. I mean, that's the idea. Like, I'm going to give you goosebumps, I'm going to do that. And I'm sitting there, and I'm having a hard time getting those, or I just, I'm too, I'm too, I'm overthinking. I get it. I'm too analytical. And I'm wondering, wait, are people just playing on other people's emotions here? Is that what's going on? Is this a formula? Because it feels like it. And I don't want to be that way. So I'm not saying this is good, but it, it does feel like if, if that's, if that's the way Christianity is thought of, like, this is our expression of Christianity, our expression of worship. That's, that's tough for me because I'm sitting there and I'm being hyperlogical and I'm not feeling it. I hope that I'm not saying this is a mature thought process. I'm just saying that's something I go through and that's why I liken it to Mr. Spock just going, well, this is, you know, this is a formula. This is logical. All we're doing is following a logical pattern. <laughs> right. And music is just frequencies and um, frequencies in this pattern and people throw their hands up and they do it at the journey concert too. Right. They right. The chorus and they hit the major. So that that's me. Sorry. So do you have recommendations or suggestions or would you even encourage creating church services to, to reach a broader range of people? I, I think people start with some presuppositions about what church looks like in the West. And it starts with a stage and it starts with a band and it starts with a speaker and it starts with a sermon centric, you know, a theater setting. And I wouldn't start with those. I, I have found for me, um, I like the give and take of discussion. I like everybody being able to speak into what's going on. Um, and so I like smaller gatherings for a lot of different reasons. And again, the big gatherings may be great, but I th- I'm guessing that for a lot of people with Asperger's, we don't like crowds. We're not extroverted. It can be overwhelming. Loud noises aren't particularly welcome for a lot of Aspies. Um, and then again, when everybody else is getting emotional or having this reaction and we're not, I think if, like, if you've got a 15 year old Aspie in your, in your household and he's standing there with his hands in his pockets and you're like, what's the matter with you? It may not be him. That's the problem. You know, this is, we've decided the church has to look this way for me as an Aspie and for my son as well, who's on the spectrum. That's, that doesn't compute so much. Um, we tend to like liturgy. I'll say that. We tend to like order, quieter, um, less harried, um, and less emotional. It tends to, tends to resonate with us, just as a general rule. Well, Brant, when does your book come out, Lesser of the Misfits? It's uh, November 27th, 28th. I don't know, 27th or 28th. Well, I can't wait for people to be able to read it, and I'm so thankful for the chance to talk with you today. And blessings with all you're doing with Cure. You can check out more about the ministry Cure at cure.org. Brant, thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks for putting up with me. (laughs) You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 